Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Open your Bibles to James chapter 5. This passage may seem familiar to you. We looked at this passage a little over a year ago in September of 21 when we were going through the book, preaching through different books of the Bible, and this is the passage I covered. And so if you are one of those people that writes the date down and the preacher at the passage, well, you're going to write this date down again. So just letting you know in case you're going, hey, I've heard this before. Well, God's Word doesn't change. (laughs) So this won't be the last time you hear it, probably. Encouraging Christians. He says in verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. There are some of you who are runners. I'm not. I'm a walker, and every now and then I hobble, but I don't run much. In fact, when I was growing up, I wasn't built to run. I was built to run over. (laughs) But those of you who are track stars, you know that if you've ever run the 400-meter run, it is the hardest run, that's what I've been told, because it is the longest sprint and about 390 meters the, or yards, the, the heart pounds and the lungs hurt. And if it wasn't for the promise of the finish line at the 400-meter mark, you couldn't probably finish it. The Christian life many times in the Bible is compared to a race. We're running the race. Today, James is saying stay in the race. Because a lot of people start the race and they don't finish well. The second coming of Jesus is our finish line. Or, obviously, when we die, we go to be with him. But, but the hope, the finish line is, we know that Jesus is coming again, and that is the reason that we keep on keeping on. Years ago, Newsweek had a big article about prophecy, what the Bible says about the end of the world. And it's interesting when you hear and read the statistics about what people believe. According to them, uh, 
about 45% of Christians believe will, the world will end in a battle at Armageddon between Jesus and the Antichrist. Now, 71% of evangelical Protestants and 28% of non-evangelical Protestants and 18% of Catholics share that view. But according to the poll, almost half of believers in biblical prophecy of Armageddon think that the Antichrist is on the earth now. He could very well be. I think I've met him a couple of times. <laughs> and in the poll, the large majority of believers in the second coming believe that the current events such as natural disasters and epidemics and outbreaks of violence like shootings are a sure sign that it won't be long. And I, I tend to concur with that. I believe that the way the world is headed, it just can't be too much longer before the Lord returns. However, I'm not setting a date, and I know that the Lord waits another hundred years, which I don't believe he will, but if he did, that's not very long compared to eternity. We're closer now than we've ever been. And James is encouraging Christians to keep looking up. He's, he's saying, you need to understand no matter what you're going through, you always have hope and don't quit. He begins to tell them to live with a continuous expectation. Have you ever heard the term, sleep with one eye open? Did you know there is an animal that does that? A dolphin. A, a, a dolphin. It's true. They do because they only let one side of their brain sleep at a time. Now, I thought it was just church people did that <laughs> in, in church. But when the left side of the brain sleeps, the right eye is closed and vice versa. When the right side's asleep, the left eye is closed. And it's not some weird ambidextrous stunt that they're pulling. It's because they have to remain partially conscious conscious to remind themselves to breathe. You see, they're not fish. A dolphin is not a fish. It's a mammal. It breathes air just like we do. But unlike us, it does not have an automatic or reflexive way of breathing. It, in other words, the experts at whales.org tell us dolphins have to actively decide when to breathe. They alternate which half of the brain is sleeping periodically so that they can get the rest they need without ever losing consciousness. If a dolphin were to ever go into sleep, full brain, total unconscious sleep, they would simply suffocate or drown. Christians are to live with one eye open. And what I mean by that is every day you need to understand as you live your life, this could be the day the Lord returns. I doubt seriously many of you thought about that this week, unless you were in trouble and you were hoping Jesus would rescue right then. But most of us don't get up going, you know, this, this may be the day that the Lord returns. We, we, that's a constant hope and encouragement in our life as we live to sleep with one eye open, not sleep, but to live with one eye open to not be lulled to sleep thinking, well, the Lord's not ever going to return. James uses the word for coming in verse 7, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. The word coming is the word Epiphany, excuse me, parousia. There's three words. Parousia or parousia, however you choose to say it. This emphasizes the nearness and the certainty that he's coming. That word was used 
for the arrival or the visit of a king. Sometimes it was used for the invasion of an army. There are two other words in the New Testament translated coming, epiphania. Epiphania was used to talk about the appearance of a God to its worshipers, little g, God. Or it was used for the, when the, Rome emperor, the Roman emperor ascended to the throne, he appeared, he took his throne, epiphania. And then the other word is apocalypsis. We get the word apocalypse. That's actually the name of the book of Revelation. The unveiling is what that means, that the unveiling of God's glory and power. So you put those three words together, Parousia, you've got the arrival of a king. Epiphania, you've got God appearing to his people and mounting the throne. And Apocalypsis, God directing on the world the full blaze of his heavenly glory. We know he's coming again. He's not coming as a baby in a manger. He's coming as a king of kings. And that encourages Christians but it endangers people who don't know Jesus. You don't have to be afraid of his coming. If you're a child of God, he has forgiven you of your sin. He saved you from your sin. He knows everything about you, and he still saved you. He knows everything about you, and he still loves you. And when he comes again, he's coming to take us home to be with him. First Thessalonians tells us we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. And he's bringing with him those who sleep in Jesus, the other believers. We don't have to be afraid. When I speak of the second coming, sometimes synonymously I speak of the rapture, which is the snatching away of believers. I believe there is going to be a rapture. I know some people don't. You can stay if you want. (laughs) I really believe it's going to happen. I believe there's going to be a snatching away of the believers. And then later, after a seven-year period, Jesus will return to this earth, and the whole world will see him then. So when I say second coming, I'm, sometimes I get them just synonymously. I know they're two different events, but I'm going on the first train <laughs> and come with him when he comes back in a full blaze of glory. But while we're waiting, and that's where we are right now, we're waiting. We're in the waiting room for the second coming. <laughs> Not the church building, I'm talking about in life. How are we to live? Well, James says we need to live as a consistent example. Consistency. Don't start something and not finish it. There are people today who claim to be Christians. They say, well, years ago, I gave my life to Christ, but I don't believe that anymore. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. John says then they never really were of the faith. Because, see, a lot of people commit their lives to a church. 
or they say, well, I'm going to be baptized, or they go through an emotional feeling, and they say, I'm going to associate with those people, and, and while everybody else is doing it, I'm going to do good. But then when it gets hard, then something is wrong because there's no commitment of heart. In fact, you're going to see in a moment, I'm not, I'll get there in a second, but he says you establish your heart in this. If your heart's not in it, but there's several characteristics here as you live a consistent Christian walk with waiting for Christ to return. First of all, you keep what I call a steady pace. Verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Verse 8 says, establish your hearts, be patient. Consistency. He mentions patience. Don't you wish he hadn't mentioned that? <laughs> patience. It's hard to be patient with people. <laughs> One lady had a nice new expensive car. She was preparing to parallel park. And I know that is completely foreign to most of you in here. <laughs> because they don't do it anymore. Nobody can do it. Unless you got one of those cars now that does it for you, that's cheating. <laughs> but just to give you a driving lesson, if you're going to parallel park, let's just say here's a car that's parked, and you're going to park behind this car. You pull up right beside it. Get all the way up beside it. Don't stop halfway and try to get in there. You can't do it. This is really not the point of this illustration. <laughs> but I thought I would inform you in case you ever have to do it. Pull up there right completely beside it and then began to maneuver in there. However, this lady pulled up beside this car to park and when she started back in, a little guy in a red sports car, he zipped right in there behind it. She got out of that car and obviously she was angry. She said, what do you think you're doing and why? Why did you do that? He said, because I am young and I am quick. Well, he left. We came back a few minutes later after what he was doing. This lady was pulling up and backing into his car and pulling up and backing into his, I mean, just ramming it, beating it. He went running up to her and he said, why are you doing that? She said, because I'm old and I'm rich. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? <laughs> patience. Patience. The word is macrothumus, which means to be long in spirit, to be long suffering. It pictures a runner catching his breath for a long distance run. You need to understand that when you commit your life to Jesus, it's a marathon till you get home one day. It's not a sprint. A lot of people sprint. A lot of people come around and they fizzle for a moment, then they're gone. James uses a farmer for an example. There are some farmers in this room. Farmers are praying for rain, and we need to be praying for rain, folks. Seriously. Because they've got to have water in the ground before they can put the seed in the ground. But in the spring, they till the soil, plow the ground, they plant the seed. The earlier and latter rains mentioned here in the land of Canaan were the spring and fall. 
But usually if there's moisture in the ground and they put seed in the ground, it's not but a few days before something begins to break the ground. They see little sprigs coming up. Now, it would be absolutely crazy for a farmer to think, well, now that I've got that coming up, I can harvest. They're wanting that seed to to sprout, and they're wanting that plant to grow into a mature plant, and then the fruit of whatever it is they planted will show up, and then they harvest it later. They have to be patient for that to happen, don't they? They have to look at the long haul. When they know when they plant in the spring, it's going to be the fall before they harvest. James is saying, when you're following the Lord and you're walking with the Lord and you thought he was going to come back by now, you've got to be patient. For those of you who shoot fireworks, and some of you live close to my house, but, but do y'all, I, don't know, I don't shoot fireworks anymore, but do they still have what we used to call bottle rockets? Why do we call them bottle rockets? Because you're supposed to put them in a bottle and light them and let them go. But even a, a rocket, any kind of rocket that goes up in the sky, it lasts that long. And then it's gone. There are people who have Christian experiences like some kind of emotional experience and they dazzle for a while, but then they sputter and they go out and they quit. <laughs> All of us know, though, that it's people who through the years have maintained their spiritual glow who helps us see the genuineness of Christianity. When you really commit your life to Jesus, there may be some times when you sputter around, but because Jesus has a hold of you, you listen to me, because Jesus has a hold of you, he's not going to let you go far. There's no such thing as I committed my life to Christ and now I rescind it. You can't do that. John says you never were of us to begin with. And so you make sure, first of all, you haven't put your faith in a church. I don't care what church it is. Don't put your faith in a church. Don't put your faith in a pastor. Don't put your faith in the fact that your parents were Christians or that you were baptized as a baby. You put your faith in the fact that you committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You planted your heart with him. I believe you, Jesus. I believe you're the only way. I, I accept you into my life. And you get into the Christian race, not to, not to earn your way to salvation, but because you are now on the, the narrow path instead of the broad way that leads to destruction. You know, the Christian race is not a competitive event. I'm not trying to get there before you. I'm not trying to outdo you in the Christian way. I'm trying to take as many people with me as I can. Bill Broadhurst, July 1981, lined up with 1,200 other athletic-looking people to run the, the 10K, 6.2-mile run, Omaha, Nebraska, the Pepsi 10,000-meter challenge. The problem was is that Bill Broadhurst, 10 years before this, had a brain aneurysm, had surgery that saved his life, but it left him paralyzed on the left side. 
but he still lined up with those 1,200 runners. When the gun sounded, it was kind of cruel that the, all those people just ran off and left him. That was, that was expected. But you could hear the, the rhythmic plop, plop, plop as he swiveled on one stiff leg and dropped his other leg. Plop, plop, plop. Two hours and 20 minutes later, Bill Broadhurst finished the cross. He, he crossed the finish line. Everybody else is gone. There are a few people standing around. One man came out of that crowd. Bill Broadhurst recognized him from the newspaper pictures of him. His name was Bill Rogers, a famous marathon runner. Bill Rogers had won that 10K that day. And Rogers walked up to Bill Broadhurst, put his arms around him and hugged him, took the metal off of his neck, put it around Bill Broadhurst, and he said, you worked much harder for this than I did. You are a winner. Well, folks, the Christian life doesn't mean you're going to cross the finish line first. It means that you finish. And the only way to finish is to keep a steady pace, to stay in it. Some days you just have to put one foot in front of the other. But you keep on going. You don't quit. The second thing James encourages them with to keep on keeping on is the staying power to do it, to stay in there, to establish your heart. Your heart has to be in it, not just a confession. See, a lot of people profess Christ, but they have never possessed him. You can grow up knowing all the term terminology. You can grow up and be raised in church and still not know Jesus. I'm a living testimony of that. You come and place your heart there. If your heart's not in it, you won't stay there. Amen? You just won't. You'll quit. And, and we live in a day and age now when if it gets hard, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I've never seen so many wusses in all my life. I'm serious. What's wrong with you young people? I may have to take some more blood pressure medicine. Listen, I, I've never seen anything like it. Well, you know, it just got hard. It, it just wasn't fun anymore. I want to tell you something. Life is not all fun you got to put one foot in front of the other, and you got to keep a steady pace, and you got to stay with it. Some of you are too young to remember Walter Payton running back for the Chicago Bears. They were playing the New York Giants one night, and then the announcer said, up to this point, Walter Payton has a combined total yardage of nine miles in his career. And the other guy said, yeah, and that's with somebody knocking him down every 4.6 yards. You're going to get knocked down from time to time. There going to be some times when you want to stop. You want to quit. I'd hate to tell you this, but if everything is going your way, you're in the wrong lane. Or if everything's coming your way, I guess I should say, you're in the wrong lane. When something seems to be going against you, 
Remember, the airplanes take off against the wind. One of my favorite stories, Mike Collin was the linebacker for the Miami Dolphins. He graduated from Auburn University. Back when Shook Jordan was the coach for Auburn University, he asked Mike Collins to help him recruit one year for, for college football. Mike said, sure, coach, what, what are you looking for? He said, well, you know, there's that fellow, you knock him down, he just stays down. That's not who we want, is it, coach? No, that's not who we want. He said, then there's that fellow, you knock him down, and he gets up, but you knock him down again, and he stays down. Mike said, no, that's not who we want either, is it? No. He said, but Mike, there's this fellow, you knock him down, he gets up, you knock him down, he gets up, you knock him down, he gets up, you knock him down, he gets up. Mike said, that's the guy we want, isn't it, coach? And coach said, no, I want the guy that's knocking everybody down. (laughs) Well, we're not knocking people down, but you got to get back up and go. Sometimes you have to get a good night's sleep. Sometimes you need a little rest. Sometimes you need a break, but you don't quit. Mother Teresa even said, I know God won't give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. I want to finish well, don't you? Listen, I've got friends who quit. They're not in the ministry today. I want to finish well. I want you to finish well. The key word is finish. But then (laughs) he has to throw this in here. And in verse 9 he says, Don't grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned because the judge is standing at the door. In other words, while we're in this, we're supposed to have a sweet personality. For some of you, that's going to be so foreign. The word groan or grumble is the word groan is sorrow created by undesirable circumstances. Groan. Sometimes we get to having a groan party or a grumble party. Every church has a grumble committee, I promise you. It's never appointed. But you need to remember your enemy, your enemy in the Christian life is not flesh and blood. Stop blaming everybody else. Every time something goes wrong with somebody, it's somebody else's fault. They've offended me. Oh, I'm so my feelings are hurt. I, and they blame everyone else. I love when he puts, behold, the judge is standing at the door. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I grew up with, I have two siblings. My brother's three years younger than me. My sister's nine years younger than me. So I was pretty much out of the house when my sister got to where she could be irritating. (laughs) But my brother and I, we learned a lot of social skills together. And I remember one day, of course, my parents made a shared room. We lived in a parsonage. There weren't that many bedrooms. And to top it off, for a while, we shared the same full-size bed. We had this line drawn. Don't you touch my leg. Your foot's touching. You're on my side of the bed and all that. You know, that's just cruel. (laughs) My parents are going to be in the next service. I'm going to remind them how cruel that was. (laughs) But I remember one day I was chewing on my brother. He was sitting there. 
And I was giving him the what for about something. I don't know what. He just sitting there quietly like he never did. Just kind of with a smile on his face. I thought it made me even matter. Until I realized there was somebody standing at the door. My mom shared everything I said, and he knew I was going to get it now because he didn't have to say a word. That's the picture here. We grumble and griped about one another. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and James says, Jesus is standing at the door ready to come back. This is not how you need to let him find you. Quit blaming everyone else for what's going on in your life. People make, people make us mad. They, make, they get on our last nerve sometimes, but don't live that way. Don't live with them as a grouch. You live a life that says, Lord, I'm yours. I want to honor you, and I want to be pleasant about it, but I will tell you that people will get on your last nerve. A man woke up one morning, three o'clock in the morning, and knocked at his door. He opened the door, and there's a drunk man standing there. He's pouring down rain. What do you want? The drunk man said, can, can you give me a push? Well, no, it's three o'clock in the morning. It's pouring down rain. I'm not even dressed. He closed the door, went back to bed. His wife said, who was it? Oh, it's just some drunk wanting me to go out there and give him a push. Well, did you help him? Well, no. She said, well, you sure have a short memory. Three months ago, we were on vacation. When we broke down, somebody helped us, and you're not going to help this man. Don't you love it, guys, when your wives do that? <laughs> okay, he got up, got dressed, went out in the rain in the dark. You still out here? Yes. You still need a push? Yes. Well, where are you? Over here on the swing. Yeah, yeah. Those people are real. They, they are. I meet a lot of them. And you know what? There are going to be people like that, but, but in general, you need to say, Lord, help me to be pleasant. Help me to show the joy of the Lord. Help me not to be somebody who just complains all the time. If you want to, you can find a lot what's wrong here. There's a typical American family driving home from church. Dad was fussing about the sermon being too long and boring, and mom said she thought the instrumentalist played too loud on the second hymn, and the sis was a music major in college, and she thought the soloist sang about a half note off key during her song, and grandma said she couldn't hear very well. They were sitting in the back, and they pulled in the driveway, little boy Willie, he listened to all this and started to fuss about the woman who sat in front of him with that big hat. And then he paused and he nudged his dad and said, you know, dad, but you got to admit it was a pretty good show for a dollar, wasn't it? <laughs> we live in a world that's growing more and more angry by the day. If there was ever a group of people that are going to show love, 
and joy and peace and patience and mercy and forgiveness. It's us. But you've got to keep one eye open on the return of Christ. But you also have one other thing that helps you stay in there. You have a secure position. In, in verse 10, he, he brings up the prophets. He said, let me remind you of the prophets. And then in specifically, he talks about Job. And he said, take them as an example. The word example means writing under. You have seen children take a picture when they're learning to draw. They can take a picture of something and put a piece of paper over it where they can see through it, and they begin to trace it. The writing under is the pattern. He said, the prophets are your pattern. And then he brings up Job. He said, Job, you've seen the end. Job didn't know what the end was going to be. When Satan began to be allowed to oppress and, and attack Job and his family, and even his friends gave him bad advice. We know at the end of the book of Job, God's compassion and, and mercy and blessings kick in, and we know it's a happy ending, don't we? But we've seen the end. You haven't seen the end of your life yet. And right now, you may be going through a very difficult time thinking, I, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this stuff when you might rewrite before God says, oh, I was, you just can't believe what I was about to do in your life or what I'm preparing you for. He said, your example are the prophets. You've seen the end. You know it's going to be good. And folks, I've seen the end. I've read the end. Spoiler report, Jesus wins. We know it's going to finish well. We know it's going to end well even though the circumstances may be difficult at the moment. He said, you can go through your life letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Be people of integrity. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Patsy Claremont, I don't even know who that is, but she wrote this about her seven-year-old son. Jason, when he was seven, I sent him off to school one day. A little while later, there was a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and there was Jason. I said, Jason, what are you doing here? He said, I've quit school. <laughs> well, why have you quit school? He said, it's too long, it's too hard, and it's too boring. And Patsy said to Jason, You've just described life. Get back on the bus. <laughs> life is hard. Life is long at times. Sometimes it's boring. 
Sometimes you just have to put one foot in front of another and keep on going. But let me remind you of the old song that was written. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. One last thing. You'll notice he put the word judge. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, why would he put the word judge there? When you and I, those of us who've committed our life to Christ, we've been saved, we've been forgiven, we've been washed clean because of the righteousness of Jesus. Nothing we've done on our own. When we see Jesus, we're going to see him as our Savior, the one who loves us. We don't have to be afraid You don't have to be afraid when you see Christ because he already knows everything about you and has forgiven you of your sin, and and you've committed your life to him. Your salvation is because of him, not because of what you did. And so when we see him, even though we all have things in our life, we think, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I was in whatever. He already knows. He's coming to take us home. When we see Jesus, we're not going to see him as the judge. That's already been taken care of. But those without Christ, when they see Jesus, it's going to be judgment. The reference is the the great white throne judgment, as we call in Revelation 20 where those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life are cast into the lake of fire. How do you get your name in that book? You're not born with it there. Your parents didn't get you there. Church doesn't get you there. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, don't take my word for it. I don't care if you believe me or not. I do care, but whether you believe me or not, it's not going to change your life. You've got to look at God's word, and it says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't Take my word for it. Take the words of Jesus. And you can know him right now as your Savior. You ask God to forgive you. Why would he forgive you? Well, first of all, he wants to. But most of all, Jesus died for your sin, and God put on you the penalty of your sin and the sin. And Jesus paid it. He died. The wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. Jesus died. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 8. And so you ask Christ to come into your life. You commit your life to him. You put your heart there. Lord, here is my heart. I give it all to you. And you'll be saved. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. And enjoy today's message. 